Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring global goddess traditions. This is the first interview I'm doing in the New Thinking Aloud studio since the lockdown began some 19 months ago. With me is my good friend Debashish Banerjee. He is the Haridas Chowdhury Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he is also chair of the East-West Psychology Department. Debashish is an art historian and a scholar and author of some 10 books. His newest book is an anthology about goddess traditions co-authored or co-edited with Robert McDermott. It is titled Philosophia, Wisdom, Goddess, Traditions. Welcome, Debashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's such a pleasure to be with you uh, in this studio after such a long time. It is a pleasure to be with you. We've done many interviews in, in the past, and I've been eager to talk to you about goddess traditions. Uh, the, the last time I think I interviewed you was during the Durga Festival when you were in Kolkata. That's, that's absolutely right, Jeffrey. That was last year. And, and it's interesting because you're from Kolkata originally. That is a city that is centered around the worship of uh, the goddess Durga. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're very familiar with goddess cultures. I suspect that most of our viewers are not. Maybe, yes. In your anthology with Robert McDermott, you have articles describing goddess traditions from virtually every continent. Yes, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, you know, the title, as you mentioned, is Philosophia, Wisdom, Goddess, Traditions. So our aim was to revise the understanding of philosophy. Uh, philosophy is normally taken to be a heady discipline. Uh, one uh, creates a certain map of reality, cosmology, uh, what is the position of the human in the cosmos, etc. But even in the very name, uh, Philosophia, we see that the literal meaning is love of the goddess Sophia. And there are traditions that go back uh, that feed this very notion of philosophy that are goddess traditions. So we wanted to explore world wisdom goddess traditions and show how the understanding of philosophy, of wisdom, of uh, knowledge uh, changes drastically if we include these goddess traditions. Well, one understanding that I have is that uh, often goddesses are associated not with the head, not with the sky, but often with the earth, with the body, with uh, a sense of being grounded in physical reality. Yes, absolutely, Jeffrey. So, goddess traditions, uh, we, we may say, began with uh, the earth, uh, the wisdom of the earth and the wisdom of the body. The body has its own wisdom. The body has its own aspirations, its own gifts, uh, the emotions, uh, and also our intuitive capacities. There's also collective wisdom. Wisdom is not always just individual. 
So the goddess traditions includes that as well, because the goddess tradition is, they are an embracing tradition. They look at us as a participatory culture. So these are the kinds of ideas regarding wisdom that we feel in this book. I recall um, years ago uh, when I lived in uh, the Cal in California in Berkeley in the Bay Area, you would see bumper stickers on cars that said, uh, the goddess is alive, magic is afoot. So it, it gave me the sense that goddess traditions are associated with magic quite often. Quite true, because magic is a earth practice. Uh, and, you know, world traditions, when we look at the religious uh, scholars of today, they divide our wisdom quest into two directions. One is a direction towards emancipation, which we may call spirituality. And the other is the direction towards, uh, towards power and the enjoyment of the earth. Uh, wisdom of a worldly kind. And those are the earth traditions. We may call them traditions of magic. You know, Carl Jung, I think it would be in his book, Answer to Job, did a very deep analysis of the Western metaphysical godhead. And uh, of course, it's largely based on the Christian Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And uh, Jung said something is missing in, in the Western psyche. Because of this, there's no feminine element in Western religions. Yes, you're quite right, Jeff. In fact, uh, our book has a chapter on the Jungian ideas of the goddess. And uh, if we look at the history of goddess traditions, at a certain point, they become, one may say, obscured or even suppressed. And uh, we find male gods, the traditions of the male gods that arise. From a Jungian point of view, he sees this as the growth of individuation, uh, a certain kind of a emergence out of the amorphous intelligence of the earth and becoming individual. But he also sees this as a transitional phase. So in Jung's astrological understanding of, of time, of history, he sees this as a transition from the Piscean age, which is the age of the Father, uh, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, into the, the Aquarian age. And he sees this heralded with the return of the goddess. He calls her the Sun Woman. And so he says that our age will see the emergence of the sun woman, a kind of a pan, uh, you know, world goddess uh, and the return of the goddess in our times. It, it does seem, as, as far as I know from archaeological studies, that certainly in the European tradition, I'm not so sure about Asian cultures, but the oldest artifacts are the mother goddess, little statuettes. Absolutely. They go well back to almost 40,000 uh, BC. And you find them stretching all the way from southern Europe uh, to, the, to uh, Russia and then south to India. And uh, this entire Eurasian tradition, we may say, of uh, goddess figurines uh, goes all the way up to maybe about the first century BC. But there is a, a kind of a gradual diminishing and there is a, a kind of a break in the record that takes place maybe around the second century BC. So there are surmises that it heralds a change of culture with the appearance of the male 
uh, as, a, as a kind of a superior uh, gender mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, urban culture that breaks us away from our connection with the earth, with the agrarian cycles, with the sky and the movement of the stars. So we lose, in a sense, our centeredness in the whole uh, cosmic uh, sense mm -hmm. and we become these individualized creatures who are pursuing individual ambitions and goals that that we are today it seems as if some very major cultural shift took place when humanity went from primarily the worship of the earth goddess to primarily the worship of the sky god that's quite right, uh, Jeff. And I think, you know, religious scholars have talked about it. Even people like Mercia Eliade have talked about these two traditions. You mentioned Carl Jung. Uh, Maria Gimbutas has proposed that uh, uh, thesis that there has been a, a kind of a radical, aggressive suppression of the goddess cults due to the appearance of the uh, nomadic warrior uh, males. Uh, archaeological evidence for that is, in a sense, I'd say scattered. Uh, it's not even and not always found. But over a certain period of time, it's absolutely true. It may not be absolutely sudden, not an abrupt change. It may be a more gradual change. And the integration of what we may call the sky gods and the earth goddesses has also taken place in a variety of places. Uh, I, I'd say India is a site where instead of the absolute radical disruption of the goddess traditions, there has been a gradual integration of the sky gods and the earth goddesses. Many years ago, I interviewed Leonard Schlein, a medical doctor who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, who wrote a book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. And he, he felt that with the development of the alphabet, we went from uh, pictorial thinking, pictographs, for example, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, to, to a linear mode of thinking, letter by letter by letter. And at the same time, you had, uh, for example, in uh, Muslim culture, in, in particular, the banishment of images entirely so that the whole mode of, of thinking changed with the development of alphabets, and, and that is related to the suppression of the goddess culture. He also added that with the development of photography in, in the 19th century, things are changing again, and people are learning once again to think more pictorially. That's very interesting because, yes, indeed, with the appearance of written language, uh, we have a sort of a phase of symbolization that takes place. We fossilize our symbols. And in that sense that earlier we had oral traditions along with the pictorial traditions, uh, the goddess traditions are largely oral for a long time. And this, uh, these written traditions seem to be more what they call in today's terms logocentric. That is the, the logos, uh, the understanding as a kind of a logical system uh, starts taking precedence over our more instinctive and intuitive understandings that are more fluid in a sense mm -hmm. that are related to goddess cultures. Now that I think about it, if we go back to the thinking, the original Thinking Aloud archives, right. there's an interview with a historian, Gerda Lerner. 
a historian of patriarchy. And, and she points out, we, we didn't always have patriarchal cultures. They developed in, I think, maybe ancient Samaria in the, in the Middle East, in Babylonia, where it, prior to that, men and women were viewed relatively equally in ancient Egypt, for example. But with the patriarchal cultures, one has, in addition to the suppression of the goddess, one has the oppression of women. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's quite true. We can see that all over. Um, and even when, when I'm talking about certain cultures that, that have integrated these traditions, uh, there still has been a certain amount of patriarchal domination and the oppression of, of the feminine. Well, in your book, you refer to goddess cultures around the world, including, for example, Africa. Yes, absolutely, Jeff. So this, this book is looking at wisdom goddess traditions, and it's first looking at Sophia, who uh, has her beginnings in the Mediterranean pre-Christian era. So it looks like it looks at cultures of Mesopotamia, at, at Anatolia, at Egypt, Isis and Ishtar and, uh, you know, Sibyl in Anatolia and some of the Greek goddesses as well. Goddesses like uh, Demeter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Aphrodite, uh, Artemis. So the, these goddesses who form the pre-Christian uh, era uh, then even in the Christian era, we have a kind of integration in certain varieties of Christianity, like in Catholicism and also in the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, to some extent in Anglican traditions. Uh, but we take it further in the book to talk about non-Western wisdom traditions. And that includes the African traditions of Nigeria, for example, uh, you know, and then, uh, of course, Buddhist traditions and, and Hindu traditions uh, of, of Asia. It's very interesting that Sophia is associated with philosophy, which one thinks of as a male pursuit uh, oftentimes. You've pointed out to me, for example, that Rudolf Steiner, the founder of anthroposophy, suggests that in a future evolution or iteration of anthroposophy, it will become anthroposophia. Quite, quite true. Uh, so Rudolf Steiner sees the movement of the goddess from Isis. Isis was the past uh, pre-Christian incarnation or embodiment of the goddess traveling through Sophia in the Christian world and now moving into a future where she is going to be Anthroposophia. Mm -hmm. Anthroposophia, as the name suggests, is like a collective human goddess, uh, Anthropos, Anthropos the, the human. So it's, it's no longer, he, he actually claims that we are forming Anthroposophia. It's the knowledge traditions of the human which are integrating themselves, not just the mental traditions, but our wisdom of uh, an integral nature and we are giving embodiment to this goddess who already exists, who's inspiring this return, uh, as it were, of, of wisdom in a holistic sense. And also you referred earlier to Catholicism, and one finds in many of these traditions the exaltation of the Virgin Mary as 
maybe the closest substitute to a, an actual goddess tradition. And there are many e examples one finds throughout the world of apparitions of, of the Virgin. Absolutely true, Jeffrey. Uh, but the wisdom, wisdom uh, traditions of the Virgin Mary uh, are also very interesting because we usually think of the Virgin as uh, the, the figure, the mother of the Madonna of Sorrows. Yeah. Uh, she is uh, only capable of compassion. But in this text, that the, the book that we are producing, we are looking at her capacity for wisdom. She's a prophet. If we look back at the beginnings of Mary, mm -hmm. she's like a prophetess. Uh, she is a person who gives wisdom. And so th these are the kind of values of, uh, of, of the Virgin Mary. And then in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, she is uh, Sophia with uh, very powerful wisdom uh, properties. So these are the ones that we are uh, highlighting. Of course, many people are familiar with the goddesses of India. It's one of your specialties. And, and there you see fierce warrior goddesses like Kali. Indeed. So when we are talking about the early goddesses, uh, we, we have the same kind of tradition of the figurines in India as well. Uh, during what is called the Indus Valley Civilization, that lasts till about 1500 BCE. Uh, and then after that, they continue to some extent. Uh, but we have the Vedic traditions that come around that time. And they also contain wisdom goddesses. Uh, that's the interesting thing. The highest god or goddess or the, the divine in, in the Veda is Aditi. Aditi that literally means the undivided one. And she's a mother goddess, a solar mother goddess. Uh, and all the suns, S-U-N-S, then multiple sun gods, they're the, the, the progeny of uh, Aditi, uh, born from her head, uh, sort of in a reversal of the idea of uh, uh, Aphrodite yeah. being born from the, uh, from the head of Zeus. Mm -hmm. But this is a reversal. It's the male gods being born from the head of the, of the feminine. Uh, solar god in a sense. But at the same time, there are also these earth traditions. And very early earth in earth traditions, you find in India, the goddess takes forms that are not necessarily human. She could be a, a body of water. She could be a rock, a cave, a mountain, uh, any place that accumulates power of a certain kind. And she may be a disembodied, powerful presence. So the power that really is invested, even in our thinking, even in our uh, acting, is considered to be a, a, a goddess power in India. And so at a certain point, you have the notion of fierce power, as you said. And there is a bifurcation of the traditions of the fierce power uh, that, that are called the family of Kali, Kali Kula. And on the other hand, you have the benign and uh, fostering powers of the mother that are called the, the, the traditions or the family of Shri, Shri Kula. Shri is a term that is used in the Atharva Veda for the goddess of nourishment that later becomes Lakshmi, the goddess Lakshmi. So you have Kali and Lakshmi creating two lineages. And then you also have goddesses like Saraswati in the Veda, 
who is a goddess of inspiration. So these are wisdom goddesses. And on the other hand, you have power goddesses. And the two form two traditions, but they also form a spectrum in between in India. Well, to me, it's sort of like the, the, the concept of the yin-yang, that one always contains the seed of its own opposite. So at this point in time, you probably have around the world goddesses and gods, male and female deities that embody almost every quality. And that's absolutely true, Jeffrey. You, you do find a certain kind of fluidity uh, and an ab ability to speak for other gods and goddesses in each of them. And you then develop uh, lineages of initiation and of, uh, of, of following uh, related to specific goddesses or gods that in a way bifurcate or become multiple. And you have, you have different forms of them that uh, have these different properties in each of these uh, goddesses that, that are, as you said, uh, imminent in them, inside them. One of the goddesses who one hears a great deal about would be Isis, an ancient Egyptian goddess who apparently had cults all over Europe. Yes, indeed. And in, in our book, we have a whole chapter on that written by a very famous wisdom goddess a scholar, Anne Baring. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne Baring and Jules Gashford uh, have written an authoritative volume on, uh, on, the, on the goddess traditions and the return of the goddess. So uh, she talks about Isis and the cult of Isis that spread across not only Africa, but also various parts of the Mediterranean before gradually disappearing. Uh, and then uh, Jules Cashford talks about Shekinah, who's a, who's a Jewish goddess. So these were all uh, goddesses of, of the Western world that were very prominent uh, up to maybe the, the, the first or uh, it's part of the second century BC. I mean, I, I mean the millennium. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The second millennium. The second millennium. Yeah. The first and second millennium. In the Jewish tradition and in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, almost inevitably when people refer to God, they use the male pronoun. Yes. And, and yet the Shekhinah is, is, well, they say the Shekhinah, these days it's thought of as the presence of, of God, sort of a, an amorphous presence, sometimes associated with what they call the Sabbath queen. Indeed, indeed. And that's, that's one of the areas where the goddess is not necessarily centered in an individual. The goddess is a presence, the goddess is a power that can travel, that can settle itself in somebody now and in somebody later. Um, the goddess can be a collective. Uh, these ideas, they, they are also present in the Nigerian goddess traditions. Uh, you know, so we find that, uh, and in India as well, you find this idea of goddess, goddess who's not necessarily individualized. The individual may be blessed by that presence, but the presence doesn't belong to anybody. In the Jewish tradition, there's a, a song that we uh, sing at, at most synagogues, I think, on the Sabbath service, uh, and it's it's like welcoming the Sabbath queen. And it's the idea is that there's this comforting presence. I think the word breast is even mentioned as part of that presence. It has to do with 
a, a sense of peace. Yes, indeed, indeed. I, I, and again, when we look at these various properties of the goddess, that's a very prominent one. And it has to do with her compassion, her love. Uh, but, you know, there's also, as you said, the other side, mm -hmm. uh, which is inside this goddess because of her concern for her children, she can become ferocious yeah. and she can slay the demon because the demon is are the dark powers uh, from which we are emerging. And in a sense that uh, the goddess is, is the mother of those powers as well, mm -hmm. but can put them in their place. So there is a way by which the goddess uh, integrates our positive and negative sides. And if necessary, uh, she dominates the negative to let the positive emerge. One of the great myths that appears, I think, probably in every culture, the myth of death and rebirth right. is associated very distinctly, not only with Jesus Christ, but with the goddess. Yes, uh, Going back to Inanna. Yes, Inanna. Demeter and Persephone, um, this rebirth, uh, the, the, the phoenix, the idea of the phoenix, the idea of the egg, the, 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 the goddess who takes into herself uh, the world, Kali who uh, it completes the cycle of pralaya and becomes the darkness who reabsorbs the creation and then brings it forth again. So, in, in this sense, we also find this in the Veda, in the, in the two mothers, the dark mother of night mm -hmm. and the mother of the day, Aditi. But the dark mother of the night is very interesting because she uh, reabsorbs the day and prepares in her pregnancy the new day. Mm -hmm. So, this is the rebirth cycle uh, that is prepared by the goddess uh, in her uh, sort of wisdom. I, I think one sees that in the Egyptian goddess Nut Absolutely. related to night. She swallows the sun right. and then gives birth to it again. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And renews it in a sense, revivifies it with new powers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the whole idea of this related to the old agrarian cycles mm -hmm. where the sun descended and came back or we had these cycles of uh, the seasons mm -hmm. and the rebirth, the regeneration of the earth. But these are not merely cyclical, they're, they're in a sense spiral. Each time the goddess swallows the creation, um, in, like with pralayas in, in, in the Indian system, the Indian cosmological system, uh, she re, uh, I mean, generates or rebirths a new world. It's never exactly the same, always uh, featuring new possibilities. And Isis is a fascinating story of death and rebirth in the myth of Isis, where yes. her husband, the god Osiris, has been captured and cut into pieces that are spread all over the Nile. Isis goes and uh, brings all those pieces and uh, reassembles them. Right. And, and and then finds the penis, yes. gets herself pregnant right. just from the penis, yes. and gives birth to uh, the god Horus, who is basically the uh, new incarnation of Osiris. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very profound, uh, Jeff. I mean, this is also in a way paralleled in the Indian cycles by the idea of the sacrifice of the Purusha. 
So, you know, the sacrifice of the Purusha, which is in the Rig Veda, and people look at it, it's a little notorious because it talks about the four castes. But the essence of it is similar to what you just said. But here, uh, it is the, the Purusha who decides to become sacrificed, calls the gods to dismember it. And this dismemberment, I think with the same with uh, Osiris, is the idea of the single becoming the plural. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really our, our story. It's the story of the earth and the individuals that are scattered all over who can't understand each other. We are all the fragments of the god that's fallen and, and dismembered itself. And it's the goddess that really brings them together. She's the imminent power of wisdom in that sense. That's what Isis represents. And in bringing together these pieces, uh, she becomes re-impregnated with the collective power and gives birth to a new world, in a sense, a new kind of uh, anthropos, which is what Horus symbolizes in this case. And so one might say when things are really falling apart, that's when we need the goddess to bring wholeness. Perhaps that's when the goddess is closest to us. Mm -hmm. When things are falling apart, we can't hold it together. And that's when we need to invoke it. This is also Jung's idea of the transition uh, to the new age, the age of Aquarius. The, the goddess is hovering somewhere uh, very close to us. And it, those who are uh, awake to the need for a, a kind of a reunification uh, call on her. And this is the future, perhaps, that we're looking at. Well, I recently interviewed a fascinating uh, woman. We had a conversation about her, and, and her video was released not long ago, Shelley Tagilski, who, to me, she embodies goddess energy. This is a woman who was going blind, her life was falling apart, it, it seemed like she had no control, and somehow through meta-meditation, the meditation of loving-kindness, she began to heal herself, build a small healing community around her, which grew to a, a global movement called Pandemic of Love. And just as we're having my first in-studio uh, conversation since the pandemic began, during those same 19 months, this organization, Pandemic of Love, raised some $60 million to help needy people and, and did it using a process known as... Um, and the name's on the tip of my tongue right right now, but a process that involved no overhead, no administrative fees, just direct people helping people. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. And it, it speaks to this collective power that you just mentioned, the collective power of the goddess, the ability to bring together, and that's happening a lot in our times. We talk about crowdsourcing, for example, the way in which something invisible is drawing people together if we invoke it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the positive uh, possibilities of our times, uh, which is uh, we, we are seeing extremely dystopic times. We are not seeing utopic or utopian times now because the civilization of the past is, is breaking down. We are seeing cracks in the seams. And there's always the attempt to put it back together like, like before. But from the cracks, we are seeing these teeming 
you know, multitudes that are invoking other powers. And this is the power of togetherness, the power of the people. In a sense, the power of the people has always been a kind of a utopian idea, but it has not really sort of been able to take hold because it becomes chaotic. But I think that's where the wisdom goddesses come into place. Because if we invoke a greater power of oneness, uh, that those, those properties start coalescing in us. And now is the time more than ever before when we're seeing that happen. And we're living in a cultural moment when you see strong women sometimes, like Shelley Tegelsky, who I mentioned, rising to positions of prominence and, and exhibiting their strength, what they can do. It, it sort of reminds me of the Hindu Shiva Shakti dichotomy. And you've shown me in our previous interviews many depictions where you see Shiva inert on the ground like a corpse and Shakti standing on top of him. She represents his energy. Right, right. And in a very similar situation, like you said about Isis uh, bringing the body together and impregnating herself with the penis mm -hmm. of, of this collective body, uh, Sh Shiva is supposed to be supine and in a sense like a corpse. Uh, Shava, Shava is the word for corpse. And the, you know, the alphabet, the, the vocal, uh, the vowel E, uh, which turned Shava to Shiva, is supposed to be a sound syllable for the, for the goddess, for Shakti. So uh, she generates life by her power, the power of the sound syllable E. But it's also sort of the, the dead who's brought, brought back to life because Shiva, she has herself impregnated by the dead, the corpse of Shiva. And uh, th that brings new life into, uh, into the world. Well, I know for myself, Debashish, uh being born with a funny name like Mishlov, I came to interpret my own name to mean love everything, love everyone. Now, I know some of my viewers take offense at that. They don't want to love everything and, and everyone, but it seems to be my message. And I think of it actually as very much coming out of a, a goddess tradition. Sure, sure, Jeffrey. I think this notion of universal love, which is ultimately more primordial than our uh, differences and antagonisms, something that can overcome even the deepest discord. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is a, a notion of the, one of the highest goddesses, uh, the goddess of love. Uh, in, in, in the Indian tradition, it's uh, the goddess Radha, who is the goddess of love. And uh, the, the supreme power, even in the Upanishads, which is bliss, ananda, uh, manifests as love, uh, the, the highest power of love that can overcome all differences. It's, it's very difficult to get to because we are always beset by these opposites. And that is really a property of the mind. The mind creates opposites because the mind creates distinctions. Uh, and so this... How do we arrive at a central uh, unity that loves everything? It's not easy, uh, but it's, it's, one may say it's like a yoga of our times. One has to purify oneself and get to that point. It's, I don't even see it as the, as the, as the uh, work of the saint, 
because the saint loves without knowledge. This is a love which sees the boundaries, sees the differences and still extends its love. I think it's the love of the yogi. Well, that's very beautifully put, Devashish, and this has been a delightful conversation. We, I know that you're here in Albuquerque. We're going to do many more interviews. I'm really thrilled to be able to share your wisdom with the New Thinking Aloud audience. So, once again, thank you for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. It was a pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.